0: to the latest episode of Public Power Now. I'm Paul Schimpoli, AVPA's News Director. Our guest in this episode is Bear Prairie, General Manager at Idaho Falls Power, a public power utility serving the city of Idaho Falls, Idaho. Bear, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul, for having me. Sure thing. So, Bear, in terms of the first couple of questions and topics I want to talk to you about, I want to talk about your resource mix and, and planning related to that. And kind of wanted to jump into things with a fairly specific question in terms of what I came across as I prepared for this interview. And what jumped out at me is the fact that Idaho Falls Power recently issued a request for proposals for geothermal energy. Can you offer additional details on the RFP and elaborate on why Idaho Falls Power is interested in geothermal? Yeah, Paul, be glad to. One of the things that interests me, just
1: at a broad sense for geothermal, is you know everybody watches it for for uh the the west and especially the northwest is we're close to yellowstone which is the world's largest caldera and super volcano so seems like we're pretty close to you know hot rock and and magma so you know it, it makes sense to look at developing resources that Mother Nature gives you in the natural geology. The other thing is the Department of Energy did some amazing work back in the late 70s to characterize and, and to show what the potential is for geothermal just maybe 120 miles south of us in southern Idaho. And at the time, the technology wasn't there for the metals, so the you know water that came up was very acidic and they ran into long-term operational issues. But since that time, through the you know really the 90s, uh, the geothermal industry has continued to develop. Where, I, and following it through through the years, and and being you know in the utility industry in Idaho, people came back later and developed that site out, and and it's done really well from a from an operational stance. In the meantime. Everybody keeps following what's going on. I think a lot of people are watching with with interest of the fracking technology that's starting to be deployed into the geothermal space and you know that that really perked my interest to you know look out and see what's really out there. We all know power supply there's a lot of companies and opportunities, and we all go to the conferences that you know, talk can be pretty cheap. So the way that you know, my my perspective was, well, let's put out an RFP and really see what's out there. I'd been approached by a few different development companies with um, some potential sites and, and projects they're working on where their pricing was looking really attractive for us. So we put the RFP out there, uh, it closed a couple weeks ago. And what we found was a couple of good options that are located here in southeast Idaho for for development that are looking like they're going to be in that mid seventy dollar per megawatt hour range is what they're what they're saying. Which for baseload carbon free energy and it's and even better yet, the geothermal that we're finding is is it's it actually peaks a little bit in the winter due to the the thermal differentials which we're a winter peaking utility and it was kind of ironic that the developer came in and said well you know it, it's not completely base load. we we have a little more than you know your average in the winter when it's really cold and a little bit less in the spring and fall and, and mm. you know i'm laughing going well that's perfect that matches my load <laughs> sheets we're a hydro-based
0: utility right so, right So yeah, yeah. We're, we're really excited about the potential Interesting, okay, and just just curious with respect to to kind of next steps what um what's the timeline at this point as it relates to the RFP?
1: We're analyzing the RFP internally right now. We have a board meeting scheduled for a month from now to review uh, all of those results with with our board, which is our city council we call them the power boards we need to make sure we're staying focused on taking care of the needs of the electric customers. And from there, we'll, we'll get direction from our, uh, our governing board of whether to proceed or not. Some of the indicative things that I've seen, we've been talking about what makes sense for, you know, baseload resources and pricing that it needs to be. And from what I've seen, I'm feeling really positive that, you know, we'll, we'll proceed with uh, one
0: of these projects. And so sticking with the the topic of, you know, uh, resource planning, can you talk about the steps utility is taking to plan for future power supply needs? Sure. Glad to. Uh, we are a growing utility. We, we've we seen
1: pretty stable growth throughout the last 10, 15 years. But for us, COVID really kicked things into high gear. I, I mm. kind of call it this I-5 corridor exodus. Um, seems like all the way up and down the western i-5 corridor from you know seattle down to southern california it seemed like people that were living in larger cities decided to see what maybe uh some smaller areas and a little more um mm-hmm. space maybe around them looked like and boy our our utility is just it it doubled to triple our normal historic growth rate mm-hmm. so all of a sudden we're getting really focused on where's our next resources going to come from. We're also a preference customer of the Bonneville Power Administration. That's, that's a big chunk of our portfolio. And then we own and operate four of our own hydro dams here in town. But those hydro resources are are capped out and we're having a, a lot more exposure to the market than we really like to. So as we look at our portfolio, we're, we have plenty of energy in the spring when our you know, temperatures are mild and the hydro's running. Fall, it turns into certain, under certain conditions and, cert, and in the peaks, we'll start to see that we're short energy. And then the winter, cold snaps and summer heat, and we're starting to see more and more central AC. We're just getting shorter and shorter. So certainly uh, some baseload at the right price and uh, right carbon profile. So it can be a, a good long-term resource, makes sense. We're looking hard at battery storage. Uh, for that kind of short-term, everyday peak, two to four hours. Uh, and then we're also looking at and uh, pursuing that longer-duration peaking, which I call, you know, peaking that you could run for, you know, six, eight hours. And then if you have prolonged cold spells or regional supply deficiencies, you can run for 16 hours or multi- and day after day or even 24 hours because we are a transmission-constrained region, which we're looking at, you know, simple cycle, recip, natural gas that we can hopefully in the future work with the Idaho National Lab, which is based here, to bring in, you know, hydrogen. They're doing a lot of interesting things around hydrogen, Uh, ammonia as a a fuel storage that can be converted back into hydrogen. So we're hopeful that this peaking plant that we're pursuing can, you know, be retrofitted and use as a collaboration space, and that's really our focus there. So, and then the last resource that we've doubled down on this past year as we've had this load growth is something we've focused on for, you know, frankly, 30 years, which is energy efficiency. So, we have doubled our energy efficiency budget for this next year and plan on continuing that going forward and, you know, trying to Save save a megawatt is continues to be uh, one of the one of the leading cost advantages that works for the utility and works for our customers.
0: Couple quick follow ups. Um, so with respect to the customer growth that, that you referenced in terms of around the pandemic, is that do you guys do you have any sense as, as to whether that's kind of peaked or is that kind of an ongoing thing? Or is It hard to say. It,
1: yeah, it it seemed like it was gonna it was gonna peak and and start falling off a little bit, but mm-hmm. it hasn't seemed to happen because now what we're seeing is ancillary businesses start to show up and all the support mm-hmm. businesses surrounding it. Mm-hmm. it. Seemed like we had a, a population boom, and then that mm-hmm. population boom needs uh, businesses and in different industries, whether it's you know from car dealerships to home construction building, material supplies, all of these other industries have surrounded back in to fill that. And one of the, one of the other big growth factors that's driving our community is the Idaho National Lab mm. being here. They've seen tremendous growth over the last couple of years, and they seem to not show any signs of slowing down. They've, they've increased their employee count. You know, a thousand to fifteen hundred people over the last couple of years. So that's it's a big economic driver and population driver in our
0: in our region. And and you mentioned battery storage in your answer. Any um, any additional comments uh, or thoughts in terms of types of technology or or how you procure battery storage?
1: Yeah, battery storage has been an interesting one for us. We we did some work with the lab a number of years back to prove out a concept of a microgrid with hydro using our, our local hydro units that the Snake River runs right through the center of town. We own and operate four hydro facilities on that, and the, the thought came up of what do we do with a regional power shortage because we're served in the out of one main substation, and so resiliency and reliability came into play. Of can we microgrid if we needed to, and and run at least part of the community with these units? One of the things that we found out from that work was we needed something to provide that frequency and voltage stability, which a battery will do that very well for you. We also did some work around supercapacitors, so we we were we came really focused three four years ago about adding adding a battery for that, and then also multi it for peak shaving purposes. What's interesting to me is we engage with a lot of the battery manufacturers. We seem to be almost small enough that that they didn't want to um, engage too much because we were looking for a two to, you know, maybe 10 megawatt battery. And at the time it seemed like they were really focused on large scale deployment or cutting edge kind of research. And we were in this middle space. We continue to talk to different battery vendors and and look at all of the different technology options. Most of it has been lithium ion. And you know, I, I'm hopeful and I'm curious to see what comes out of all of the deployments we have done in California this last year and to see that, you know, it feels like that's technology starting to mature and we're starting to understand and get better control systems. So I really think that battery storage is is going to be the next one of the next
0: components we also add to our system. So just wanted to switch gears here and talk about the fact that um, Idaho Falls Power has been recognized by APPA as a reliable public power provider, earning the top diamond level designation from APPA. And just for our listeners, the reliable public power provider program recognizes utilities that show high proficiency and reliability, safety, workforce development, and system improvements. So against that backdrop, I wanted to know if you could describe for our listeners steps and strategies that the utilities taken taken to, to earn this recognition. One of the things that that we found out and that we needed to lean in on a
1: little bit more that pushed us to the to the diamond level in the top tier is we were always doing a lot of the things and we're doing them right. We just weren't as deliberate on the process and the documentation and the deliberate approach and how we get there. So as we've we dug into the program and so much is centered around define this and show us your documentation and policy and practices. You know, I used to be like, well, we end up doing all these things, and we but it was less deliberate. So what we started is for our capital improvement projects and any system improvement projects, we engaged everyone in the utility and said, "Bring your best ideas. Let's talk about these. Let's write them up and let's collaborate on what makes the most sense for all of these system improvements, process improvements, practices, and, and have that conversation. And anybody can come up with those and let's document them, put them into a form, and weigh these different um, improvements. The other thing that we did is also engage, when we had outages or system, system issues, we started doing after-action debriefs in a more deliberate manner also, and, and we put in place a process of we need to sustain or improve. So what we did, did we do the right things? Is there things that we could have done better? If if we did things right, we need to talk about that and recognize it so that we can sustain that type of behavior. If something needs to be improved or we could have done some things better the next time, let's talk about that and put practices and policies and procedures in place so that we can improve upon that and, and grow. The other thing that we really leaned in on is our organizational culture and that culture of accountability. So a few years back, we, we, we focused on what do we wanna be as an organization and, and what defines us? And where we landed on was 100% accountability. So everybody is personally accountable to all of the business outcomes and the culture here which encompasses the safety culture. You can't force somebody else to be safe, but you can certainly take care of your safety and what you're doing and help your other coworkers around you and talk about safety and talk about that culture of accountability. So it really was getting that alignment top to bottom and being more deliberate in that documentation processes, practices. Do we need to have a procedure on this? Let's document this stuff and be deliberate. And then what we found was leading up to the APPA process, all of that mechanics is put in place to where it's not that arduous to apply and go through that. So it was really, it's it's great stuff that's helped us, you know, kind of be more thoughtful in how how
0: we do our business. Interesting. In terms of preparing for this interview, one of the things that, that jumped out at me is the fact that you were joined by recently by Idaho false power design technician, John Morgan. Uh, in showing um, Administrator Richard Stover, who's from the Idaho Office of Energy and Min- Mineral Resources, the work that the utility is doing with their support, support from an energy uh, resiliency grant, the utility was awarded through that office. And so I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners about what projects Idaho Falls Power is pursuing as a result of this grant. The project
1: that we submitted and were successfully awarded was downtown e- or, or undergrounding a downtown alley. The uh, Edel Falls is an older community. Well, not older compared to you know, communities back east. But one of the older communities uh, out west. And tradi- traditional construction is everything's overhead and put on, you know, H structures with big transformers suspended up above the alleyway underneath. This type of construction is causes some safety and clearance issues uh, in modern day construction, especially with the height of new buildings. But moving this infrastructure underground is very, very difficult because what's already in all the um, alleys underground is your gas lines, your phone lines, communications, and and 100-plus years of people burying everything in the alleys and not documenting where any of the sewer lines are, water lines, and such. The other main struggle with undergrounding uh, this type of infrastructure is you have to change the service connections for all of the businesses and residences that are located in that area. Cause you're moving from an overhead service to an underground, which has a large cost and operational impact for those businesses. So you need, it's moving on inside the businesses say, well, you need to upgrade your electrical services on the inside of the business to now be in an underground service, which then the local businesses and residents certainly say, well, that sounds like your problem, not mine, is the electric utility, and why should I have to pay money for this? So it really gets into this cost and complexity and equitability in the rate design of how to pay for this. So when we saw an opportunity to work with the Office of Energy and Mineral Resources to get this grant, it was a way if we could bring the, this support funding home and match it with what, we can spend it got the price down to where it made it economically feasible to move all these services and do that stuff that was on the other side of the meter so we partnered and and had local uh, electrical company here do all the inside electrical work and all of these businesses in the alley and were able to move all of you know through two whole alleys underground, and then we're gonna to continue to hopefully compete and get some additional funding, um, some future opportunities that are just being released to continue working through that downtown corridor. It's big safety improvements for clearances. Uh, this is aging infrastructure. And the other side benefit is it really cleans things up from a visual standpoint. Um, so we're, we're excited to see those, those projects come to fruition
0: wanted to end our conversation talking about unfortunately something that continues to, to plague the power sector, as you know, and that's supply chain challenges. And you know as we're approaching 2024 that that remains an ongoing issue um, for utilities. So wanted to take advantage of our, our discussion to have you talk about strategies the utilities adopted to respond to supply chain challenges.
1: I think the biggest strat- strategy you can deploy is get out your binoculars and try and look as mm-hmm. far over the horizon as you can, which is, right. is always difficult trying to figure yeah. out what's over the horizon. And and we've done that of challenging our staff to basically say and educate that the norms are, are not the norms and we need to think of kind of those worst case scenarios, but also be conscious of don't just order and stock up on everything just because you can, because that exacerbates the supply chain issues for everybody. So we try to temper a lot of what we do with being good neighbors to the industry, because I don't want to be the utility that a neighboring utility drives by and sees, you know, massive <laughs> stockpiles right. of transformers, and they're saying, "Oh, that's why we can't get transformers; they're all set in right. Idle Falls." So trying to be thoughtful and pragmatic, but still look look over the horizon. One of the uh, biggest things that we started to do and, and we're early on is, and, and we've always done it a little bit, but we really ramped it up when we started to see supply chain issues was uh, rebuilding transformers. Yeah. And it's really helped us with those standard bread and butter residential transformers is sending them back, get them rebuilt and get some more time out of these ones. Um, that were taken back, and the lead time to get those rebuilt is much better than buying new transformers so it certainly helped fill the gap. The other thing i, I tell uh people in the community and, and my board is we became really focused on recycling so <laughs> and so as we would wreck out or upgrade uh, lines or different equipment, stuff that little bolts and brackets and pieces and parts that we would normally just put into the scrap bin because it wasn 't worth the time and effort to clean it up, put it back on the shelf. One of the biggest things I've seen with supply chain and even price increases is odds and ends bolts and pieces and brackets that you could easily get and you miss one little component, you can't do a project. Mm-hmm. So we went back and really analyzed past practices and we have it now where our linemen they come back from a job and do a teardown or a wreck out of equipment. They throw anything, they kind of break everything down and they throw it in different bins. And then our warehouse crews go through that, analyze what can be cleaned up. And we've bought a bunch of wire wheels and even bolts and nuts and all the stuff we found can be cleaned up. And the economics around it are really good because a part that used to be 50 cents is now 4 or $5. When you look at the labor it takes to refurbish that part to get put back out on the system, this starts to make some really strong economic sense and operational sense and it's good for the environment so we've we've really embraced let's look top to bottom at what we can put back on the shelf the other thing is that i'm thinking about is you know look at what where the money and different funding opportunities be, are are flowing from doe and some of these grants and think about what those impacts are going to be on your supply chain also and and try and see where money and growth is going to be. So you almost have to be a, a macroeconomist a
0: bit to think about the impacts of supply chain. All really, really interesting um, information. I did have one follow-up question. So in the context of customer growth in, in, the, in the territory you serve, has there been any issues in terms of supply chain challenges cropping up uh, vis-a-vis you know, new housing construction?
1: Yeah, the the new housing construction was really supply chain crimped a year and a half ago. Seems like maybe now with higher interest rates, there's getting to be a little bit more of a supply of housing on the market. Uh, Single family continues to, I think, maybe struggling out these interest rates of affordability. But on the flip side, what we're seeing is lots of growth in apartment complexes. And that's growth that we traditionally didn't see in Idaho Falls of large uh apartment complexes being built by big out-of-state developers and investment groups in the last two three years that's been a big segment of our growth is uh large commercial apartment complexes i think a lot of that's driven by you know the affordability index of what you know people can can get into for
0: housing well bear this has been a great conversation and and as usual this has been an interview that 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 often occurs uh with other general managers and CEOs of public power utilities is that there's there's a lot of ground covered, which is great, obviously for our listeners, a lot of useful information, but it also opens doors to uh revisiting uh some of the topics that we discussed. So uh love to have you back next year sometime so we can talk about things like power supply planning and and I'm sure there's other topics we can we can either revisit or or touch upon new topics. So Wanted to throw that out there and, and and offer you an open invitation to come back. Thanks, Paul. Love to love to come back and chat again in the future. Thank you for having me. Sure thing. Thanks again, Bear. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Power Now, which was produced by Julio Guerrero, graphic and digital designer at APPA. I'm Paul Shimpoli, and we'll be back next week with more from the world of public power.